0: It's good to see you. I know there are many people uh, traveling and on vacation and lots going on, so it's good, good to be together, good to have you guys here, um, and just good to be together as a family. You know, one of the things and one of the reasons why we're doing the round table thing uh, for the summer for these months is just it kind of ties into our series and what we're going to be talking about, but as well, we are really fighting against talking heads from the front, uh, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I think, like, teaching and preaching is imp- obviously is important. But we're trying to fight a little bit against this thing called sermonology. I think one person called it sermonolatry, like the idol of... Uh, oh, grab that phone. You got, a, got a deal going or something? Like, okay, that's... A, okay. Um, of course, it's, you know, just ruining this great sermon for the talking head at the front. It's great. just uh, I'm just joking. <laughs> Knocking down the idol, right. Anyways, we're really trying to work towards, you know, um, the tie-in with the the vision of where we're headed, the co-vocational vision, but along with that, really a vision of your voice being as important uh, in this whole turn in towards kind of the future of our church. It's really important to create space where we can slow down and... So I'm going to lead us again through some things in Jonah. We're in this kind of short story in the Old Testament. But I really hope that uh, these times are meaningful where we turn around at the end and give ourselves space. And again, I think preaching and teaching is important. I think all of that. But I also think we've put people on stages over the last couple decades in certain formats. And it's just imploding everywhere in the Western context. And I don't mean that negatively. It's just true. We need to put the ball and the church back in the hands of the people. Uh, that's literally what liturgy means, the work of the people. Anybody with me? And so with that, I'm really pumped. Uh, Sonia's here. Sonia has started as our administrator. She's about to leave. Were you about to leave us? No, I'm just joking. No. She's che- probably checking that things are in order, which is great. So Sonia has started as our, our administrator um, as well as our service coordinator. Um, I know there's a ton of people away, but we are, over the next couple weeks, going to put single teams together to kind of help with kids and the things that are going on for the next couple of weeks. And then we're just preparing for a launch with full kids stuff, like it will be adjusted a little uh, depending on how many kids we have in there. Youth on a regular basis, it won't be every single week but our students will probably be out um, uh, as Heidi kind of takes that on every couple weeks with their own lesson, they'll be in for music. Uh, The older elementary kids and the youth will be in for music and then we'll go out to their lessons preparing for that. So if you want to get involved in any way, we'll have some other um, information around what music's going to look like and all that as as we kind of head into our future. Really beautiful. If you'd like to get involved and you haven't been, just talk to Sonia. Um, She would love, and we would love, but I know she's taking that on. Really love to get you involved in any way. At the same time, you know the heart of where we're at. You can sign up on a clipboard. You can talk to Sonia. You can sign up online. That's all beautiful. And tasks are important. But really the hope is is that all of us, it's, you know, posture above task for us. And what I mean by that is is if we just all have posture of host every single week when we gather, there's certain things that need to be done week to week. But if we open our lives up together, I would really love for the lines to be blurred a bit, if you know what I'm saying. Yes, there's jobs that need to be done, but all of us just opening our lives up together. So... Um, Talk to Sonia if uh, you would like to get involved with that Um, in any way. Including kids, youth stuff. uh, We need hosts, obviously musicians, different things like that, to kind of help with the week-to-week work here. The other thing is... Last week was great with the community pieces and communities getting together, and we really pushed communities just to have fun together last week, and it was beautiful to see some of the pictures and some of the things that were going on. Uh, One of the things I'm trying to do as a parent as well is, you know, one of the questions last weekend was, so like, oh, we we aren't going to church. That was the thing, right? Like, we're not coming to a place like this. So, oh, Dad, we, we, we don't have church. We're not going to church. And pushing against that, oh, no, we have church. It's just once a month in a little bit of a different setting where it creates space for us to be together. And so um, I just noticed myself wanting to, like, challenge my own preconceived language a little bit of church kind of being kind of one peg in one hole, you know, Um, and trying to kind of take that out and see that there are multiple ways in which we want to worship throughout the month, and communities are a huge part of that. And so, uh, thanks to you guys that were kind of leading communities. And uh, I know. Um, and the funny thing is, you could think maybe, oh my goodness, like once a month you're going to go into communities because you want to do less work. The reality is, communities actually take more time. You can come here for an hour and kind of sit and hang out. Uh, I think the average time for our community over the summer times that we've been together is five hours, right? So, like, communities are actually. It actually takes more. Like, we were together four or five hours last weekend, and so um, anytime somebody says, oh, we're just trying to do less work, I just kind of chuckle because actually when you actually get in the lives of other people, it's actually more work in a good way. With all that said, um, the book of Jonah, the Old Testament book of Jonah. Uh, If you want to open with me, open up to Jonah chapter three, all right? We are in the part of the story where Jonah has gone down He, instead of going to this place called Nineveh, which is like modern-day Iraq, has hopped on a boat and headed to Tarshish. Um, Most of us uh, understand Tarshish, if you know kind of the geographical place in which this is unfolding, is like modern-day Spain, where literally Solomon, King Solomon at one point, imported peacocks and all sorts of domestic birds and stuff. Like this place... You get a picture, is like the land flowing with milk and honey. And so instead of going to Nineveh to be this prophet, remember this is like Jonah's deal, he is headed on a boat towards Tarshish. And um, one of the things we're trying to do is read the letter and re-engage this letter in context. Now, I taught through this letter 10 years ago, and we are taking a letter, this book, sorry, this Old Testament short story, taught through this 10 years ago, taking a much different approach. Because as I've grown in the scriptures, I've learned that Jonah was a symbol for Israel. When they would read this little four-chapter story, they were to see themselves like a mirror. They were to read the story of Jonah and not kind of brush off passing judgments, look at this tool who disobeys God and God goes and does his own thing. The letter is actually humor, it's satire. We've talked lots about this. The the writer of this book, not letter, the writer of this book is very humorous in his approach, especially in Hebrew. Now we miss it in English a little bit, but as I've said throughout the first couple weeks, there's like laugh tracks that should be played in the background. Some of you like Saturday Night Live, this is like satire all over the place because the characters in the story do exactly the opposite of what you think they should do. The prophet of God completely goes a different way. The pagan, and I use that in terms of like, this is actually what the scriptures talk about as far as pagan being people who worship different gods. The ones who really shouldn't have got it are the ones that are turning to God. And we're going to learn now, Nineveh, which in the context, in the moment of this ancient world would have been like some of, it would have been like, The place you would not want to go, especially if you were a Jewish prophet. This is a place you would not want to kind of brush up to in your so-called ministry. And yet we're going to see here a whole city turns to God. So at the point of the story, the the writer in Jonah 1 is trying to make a point. Jonah is going down. He goes down to Joppa. To get on this boat. He goes down into the boat. He goes down into the belly of the whale. It's like there's a cadence here. There's a rhythm. Just like the writer of Genesis 1 opens up with, it is good. It is good. The poetry of this in this writing is Jonah is going down. Chapter 2, we posted something from Tim Mackey last week, and he just unpacked a little bit of the poem or the prayer that Jonah prays once he gets into the belly of the whale. And now God's mercy is that he would actually spit Jonah back up on the shore of Nineveh. That there's this kind of, in a sense, a second chance. Now here's how I've taught this in the past. And it's not wrong. Um, Here's how I've taught it. God's good. Jonah is given a second chance. He goes to preach to the people and they repent. Let's all cheer and go home. God's a God of second chances. Isn't that great? Let's clap our hands, right? Well done. And there are certainly some truths in that, and I've preached this before and taught this, but I actually think that is not the point of what's happening here. Jonah gets spit up on the shore of Nineveh, and this is what it says. Ready? Verse one. Then the Lord came to Jonah a second time and says exactly the same thing. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you, So this time, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, and he went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it, the legend was. And Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, and this is what he said. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, here's how I've taught this in the past. Isn't Jonah great? Like, given a second chance, he's so obedient, he does this thing, well done, this guy has kind of turned his life around. This is not what's happening here. Actually, in in the Hebrew, uh, and we don't obviously read, and I'm not great with Hebrew either, this proclamation that Jonah brings, you need to feel it. There's angst here. Jonah, even in this second chance, is heading into the city He does not want to proclaim this. And we get in his tone that he uses five words in Hebrew. I think it's seven or eight in English. Jonah is actually going with this kind of second chance, and he doesn't want to preach to these people. And he does it disparagingly and begrudgingly and does it in five words. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Picture for us that this is not a good dude. Like to the point where he's had these kind of disorienting experiences in the story and he still hates these people. And it's a picture for us of that. And this is what we're going to unpack a little bit and we'll get you to talk about this. He does the right thing the wrong way. So he goes and does what he has to do and bare minimum, five words, he walks into the city and he begrudgingly does what God has called him to do, but he hates these people. These people are his enemies and even after sitting in the belly of a whale, he's not changed enough to actually love these people. He's done the right thing. He's got to the end goal. He's checked the box here as the prophet who's called to go to preach to the city but he's done it the wrong way. Now, here's the irony and the humor, and this is where we should laugh. We're going to read here what happens in Nineveh, but just think in those terms. Five words goes into the city, begrudgingly does not want to do this, says these five words. I can imagine Jonah going in going, okay, I've done the bare minimum. Gone in, checked the box done what I should have done, and now I'm gonna get the heck out of here because these people aren't gonna turn to God from this little five-word sermon, which, by the way, some scholars would say is like the the shortest sermon in all of the scripture, right? Listen to what happens. This is where the the writer of this wants you to, like, see the irony, the satire, he wants you to, here's where the laugh track comes. The Ninevites believed God, and a fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. Now that doesn't mean much probably for us but sackcloth was a sign of repentance and turning in the ancient world. Verse six, when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he, the king, think about this, of the most vile people in the ancient world rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. And this is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered in sackcloth. Literally, the king is calling for the entire city to kind of turn to repentance. Let everyone call urgently on Yahweh. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw that they did this and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Now, here, brothers and sisters, in the context, we're supposed to laugh because Jonah wants to, like, go in, do the bare minimum. I don't like these people. Let's get in here and get the heck out of here. They're not going to turn to God anyways, right? I'm out of here. And the whole story in the writer shows us that actually it flips on its head and an entire city turns to Yahweh in repentance. Now, I've taught this before and I've looked at old notes from Jonah 3. I used to teach this. Here's the point. God loves cities, right? And I, I remember even one of the teachings I did It had like breakdown of London and how God's called us to the city and all that. And all that is wonderful and true But the point of this is to act as a mirror for us, that we can do the right things the wrong way. And I actually think what Jonah teaches us is that God actually cares about our hearts, our lives, our motives. And so for Israel, Jonah was this thing in the canon that kind of revealed to them who they are. You read the story and then you realize, holy cow, like we are Jonah, right? There's a sense, too, that now, a uh, few millennia later, that we're the ones that picked us up as the people of God, and it's supposed to kind of do the same thing. Israel's call is no different than the church. When Israel was called out by Abram, Abraham, to be this nation under God, um, it was to be a blessing, to actually, th- that the world through them would receive this blessing. And if you know, when Jesus sums up the law, Uh, somebody comes to Jesus in in the New Testament in his teaching and says, hey, can you like sum this all up? What's the most important? He just reflects back as a signpost and says, love God and love people. Love God with everything, love people. And yet you know that Israel's story was marked by failing and at times doing the right thing, with the wrong motive, and the, for the wrong reasons, and you see this through a group called the Pharisees, which, by the way, some people think Jesus started as a Pharisee, so you got to remember, this group wasn't necessarily bad, but their motives and the way they went about things in their putting burdens on people was a reflection and a signpost of how they, you could do the right thing The Pharisees ultimately were a group that thought the kingdom of God is coming to earth through piety. They wanted to see the kingdom of heaven come to earth. That's a good thing, but the way in which they did it was the wrong way. Actually, Jesus deals with this right before he goes to the cross. He says in Matthew 23, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do for they do not practice what they preach. This is what Jesus says of the Pharisees. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Jesus saw that, hey, these people, they may think they have the right motives. They may even, in their piety, the way they pray and the way they fast and how everything is done externally, that these people kind of do the right thing, but there's the wrong motive under it. So much so, I don't know if you know this, there's 613 laws in the Old Testament law, but what the Pharisees and scribes did is they just dumped on more laws upon more laws to where this thing became a burden on people. With that said, we're in a long line of people, whether it's Israel, the Pharisees, and now the church, that need to be confronted, just like Jonah, That we, in the end, could do the right thing externally, even as a church in the way we practice, but do it for the wrong reasons. And this is what we need to unpack today. This is actually the thing I think Jonah wants to teach us, is we'll learn next week, Jonah is sitting outside the city of Nineveh at the end under a plant, and he's cursing out God because he wanted God to destroy his enemies. It was like an evangelism notch. I'm going to go in, do, make sure I get the notch on the belt, make sure my bases are covered, but in the end, miss the point. And, guys, I think we're at a moment. I just, we just, I just love being a part of this community. It's just so beautiful. I think we are in a moment where even when we talk about things like evangelism, this at times, we need to be confronted with this. This has been our posture a bit. We want people to come to know Jesus, not, I'm not talking practice. I just mean in general. But we don't want to love people, right? I'm talking for myself sometimes. I want the world, I want this city to come to know Jesus. But sometimes, when you get down to what's under it, I can do the right things for the wrong reasons. I've been around this. Uh, was around a very heavy evangelistic movement in a church I was a part of, and. I think I've said this to you guys, like people didn't even know their neighbors' names. And so here we now live in the crosshairs of all this, you know, years later, and the reality is, and this may be a good thing, nobody is really listening. Do you notice this? Especially through COVID and information and and the Twitter, right? Like we just all have this free-flowing information and everybody has a say that in our moment right now, there's not a lot of people listening and maybe... Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe right now what we need is we need to do the right things with the right motives. We need to do the right things the right way, and that's loving our neighbors. Loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And actually caring about people and not seeing them as another notch in the belt. Or some, you know, we know this. Like people were just trying to get into heaven. There's part of that. There's part truths in that. Don't hear me wrong. But as the people of God, at times, I think it's been very easy to do the right thing for the wrong reasons. And now, post-COVID, and as we pick up Jonah and what it's trying to say to us, it could just be a reminder. And we've done this in different areas, right? You think of politics, churches muddling themselves with politics, maybe for the right reasons. Or sorry, for maybe kind of feeling like they're doing the right thing, but the wrong reasons under it, to sexuality and the just the movement we've seen in the last couple years in purity culture, there's good, th- the Bible talks about sexuality and order and all of these things, but how that's displayed itself over the last few decades in the church. It could have been the right thing for the wrong reasons and morality and all sorts of things that we face in our moment. We just have to ask, under our desire to see the kingdom of God come to earth as it is in heaven, which I think anybody that's following Jesus, this is our desire, is it for the right way? And so that's how we're going to end this morning. My goal through this whole series is just to like kick the bees' nest once in a while to maybe show us a little bit of an interpretation in the sense of like, hey, God lo- does God love cities? God loves cities. Does he want the city to turn to him? Absolutely. But here you have a prophet of God who is a prototype, in a sense, for Israel and for the church. The outcome was good here. A whole city turned to God, and yet he misses the point. And I just think for us, that's a great place to start in our endeavor as a community. And I'm not, that's, when I say, like, I'm, I'm not passing judgment on you. I, as I re-engage Jonah this summer and come from this posture that we are Jonah, I just have a lot of questions for myself, as a paid pastor the last decade or more, actually like 15, 16 years and like just in ministry and trying to get stuff done and see things happen. All of that is good, but under it, what's what's our motive? And so what we want to do is just give you time, just before we come to the tables, for you to wrestle through that. What do you think? What comes to mind as we talk about this, kind of doing the right thing the wrong way? What do, you, what do we see in Jonah? What do you see in the church? We want to leave it all on the table. Let's take it off um, the, the sermon, you know, the sermon guy, and now let's put it in the hands of the people. What do you think? Take a few minutes. Sound good?